Welcome to the Freshman Foundation Podcast, helping you make the jump from high school athletics to the collegiate level and beyond with your host, Michael Huber. Hey everyone, it's Mike Huber, founder and CEO of the Freshman Foundation and certified mental performance consultant. If you're listening to this episode, then you're likely a student athlete or family member of one. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Hopefully you find our podcast valuable. Mental performance coaching allows young athletes to show up at their best every single day by conquering distractions, pressures, and mental roadblocks through evidence-based strategies. So let's talk. You can visit my website at michaelvasinvincenthuber.com to schedule a free strategy session. Let's see if mental performance coaching is a fit for your family. Enjoy this episode, and thank you again for listening. How has Evan Burke developed the intangibles necessary to create his dream career in coaching? Humans are results-oriented creatures, plain and simple. Perhaps somewhat ironically, the most successful people develop the resilience to keep going when the road to achieving their goals is paved with obstacles. Character and mindset are often as important as natural ability when pursuing athletic success. My guest in this episode is Evan Burke, former NFL assistant coach and author of a book entitled Finding Intangibles. Evan started his career coaching fourth graders and within a relatively short period of time, went on to coach at Southern Methodist University and with the Miami Dolphins. In episode 41, Evan talks about how his path to professional coaching started with calculated network building and keeping a laser focus on the things he could control. Evan wasn't a college athlete, nor did he have any friends or family in the coaching profession. Rather, Evan was intent on dominating every day to the best of his ability, understanding that he had to keep going in order to reach his goals. Through a blend of dynamic storytelling and real-life case studies, Finding Intangibles shares Evan's unique perspective while revealing the framework for how organizations can update their approaches to make character a competitive advantage and unleash unleash the true potential of their team. I'm excited for this conversation. Let's build your foundation with Evan Burke. Hey, Evan, how are you? Hey, Michael, doing great today. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. It's great to have you here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So let's kick it off. So how did you go from being a fourth grade football coach to the NFL in just six years? Well, uh, I could probably take the next 45 minutes and kind of outline all of the steps that it took, (laughs) but uh, to try and uh, tell the story as succinctly as possible, uh, when I was in college, I had started coaching. I had this idea that I wanted to be a coach, and and my background was I played high school sports. I wasn't a tremendous athlete, but I was captain of my high school wrestling and football teams, always loved sports. And when I went to college, I just felt like something was missing in terms of the competitive aspect of sports. And so Mm -hmm. I started getting involved in in youth sports coaching. And and that led me to coaching a fourth grade football team. Uh, I had this idea at the time, I I was 19, 20 years old, that I wanted to be a professional coach, that I wanted to coach in the NFL or college. But I didn't know anybody. And I wasn't playing in college, so I wasn't a player. Uh, and, And I just knew I had to start somewhere. And that led me to uh, the Boulder Rec Center, 
uh, to have my first experience literally starting at the bottom of coaching, coaching a fourth grade football team. And as I progressed through college, I also progressed in coaching. I went from coaching fourth grade football to freshman uh, football at a local high school and, and coaching with that JV. And after I graduated college, I went on to pursue trying to find a college job um, and ended up at uh, Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. And just so happens that I'm from Dallas, Texas and, and grew up five minutes from the stadium here uh, in Dallas and was really a, a great situation for me in particular because I started as a, a volunteer ops assistant passing out Chick-fil-A's on the bus uh, <laughs> and anybody that's been in college athletics or, or coaching can relate. You know, you don't get paid a lot to do that job. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I was a volunteer. I was getting paid, uh, I think, hourly to, to monitor study hall. Um, but because I was in Dallas, I was able to uh, stay in my grandparents' pool house. Um, and, you know, it's definitely a struggle when you are a young college coach. And, and that was really great for me uh, to have that and uh, progress in my time at SMU uh, to, to eventually becoming an on-the-field coach. I, I coached on offense and on defense. Um, and uh, at the end of the 2009 season, uh, my time as a grad assistant had expired and I wanted to pursue getting a job in the NFL. I didn't really have a substantial network at the time. Mm -hmm. So what I did and I, and I knew I was different, Michael, right? Like I, I'm not a former player. I didn't even mm -hmm. play in college and I don't have any relatives or, or a dad that is an executive mm -hmm. with an NFL team. Right. So I, I knew I had to do something different. And so what I did was uh, the limited coaching network that I had, I made a spreadsheet of everywhere they had coached from 2009 to, uh, since 1970. And uh, after I made this spreadsheet, and this was maybe my coaching network that I had like worked intimately with was maybe 25, 30 people. And after that, I then made a list of every employee in the NFL, every member of a coaching staff, every pro personnel director, general manager, anybody I could find information from. And I did the same thing, 1970 to 2009, everywhere they had coached. Uh, and what I started to do was I started to take my network and kind of piece together who had worked with who in the past. Uh, and again, I was trying to find some some type of edge that would set me apart because I wasn't a former player, because I didn't have a dad that everybody mm. knew that particular person. So I started to do handwritten letters to all of these coaches that I had a connection to, even if I didn't even know if that was a good connection or not. Hey, Michael, just wanted to write write you. I'm a grad assistant here at SMU. I work with uh, Jonathan Smith, and he says great things about you. I'm going to be at the Senior Bowl, and I would love to buy you a beer and get your advice on getting a job in the NFL. Uh, and I did this uh, for every person that I had a connection to, and I ended up writing 450 handwritten letters throughout the entire league, just trying to find somebody that would see that and it would trigger something in their mind to either call me or, or have a meeting with me. And it also did another thing too, Michael, when I was pursuing these people and I would go to events like the Senior Bowl in Mobile, Alabama, where mm -hmm. the, the top 
basically the top players in the draft are, Mm. but also every executive coach in the NFL attend as well. It allowed me to approach people and say, hey, my name's Evan Burke. I don't know if you got a letter I wrote you. Uh, And most of the people that I approached uh, that I shared this with had at least, even if they didn't respond to me, they had at least seen it. Um, I did Mm -hmm. a unique thing where I stapled my business card to the top right-hand corner. All of this to say, like, I was just trying to find an in and trying to utilize every small little edge that I could to set myself apart. Uh, And at that senior bowl, I had made a list, a top 10 list. Uh, These are the top 10 people I want to connect with. Um, Mm -hmm. I ended up connecting with eight of those people. And it might have just been as simple as me approaching them uh, uh, cold at an event or at a practice and introducing myself and having a 90 second interaction to sitting there and, and talking for 45 minutes. But I had these, I, I connected with these eight people and one of those people ended up being a member of the Miami dolphins. Uh, and that ended up being kind of one of the connections, uh, as I progressed through that off season that mm-hmm. ended up helping get my foot in the door in the NFL. So that was a little long winded, um, but uh, kind of kind of shows the the steps and, and maybe a little bit of my thinking as I approached um, trying to access that highest level of professional sports with a background that didn't necessarily make me uh, a, a, an instant candidate. I'm tr- I'm truly fascinated by that story because there's so much to it in terms of the way that you thought about mapping out these relationships and these networks and then the way that you pursued it in such a sort of clinical way of like, Hey, like I'm going to write these letters. I'm going to follow up. I mean, there's so much sales training in that, you know, but if I related to my, if I related to my audience, which tends to be my audiences, I, I work with a lot of young people and they're going through the recruiting process. And I think there's this natural reluctance to reach out to coaches or this belief that someone's going to come find you. And what you just described is something that any family could do as in the recruiting process to say, make a list of all the people that you want to talk to and go reach out to them and say, Hey, I want to meet you. I want to talk to you. And I think that that's something a lot of people don't do. Um, so I'm curious. So like, how did you come up with the idea to do that at that point in your life? Cause you're still pretty young, right? Like you're just out of college. Like what made what was the inspiration for being like, I'm going to go create this like mapping network network map, and I'm going to go tackle it, you know, the way that you did. Yeah. I think that a lot of it goes back to number one, my passion and, and my mm-hmm. maybe at times unrealistic belief and confidence in myself mm-hmm. that, that that's where I belonged. And I think also along the way, you know, you meet certain people that, And especially during that time when I was trying to figure out like what was next, I had plenty of coaches telling me that, you know, you should go after a division three job. You should go after a division one double a job. And that, and and in terms of being realistic, they're, they're not wrong. Those coaches weren't wrong, Mm -hmm. but I also had a couple of people in my inner circle that were very encouraging to me that, not only were encouraging, like, yeah, you should go for it, that were, were telling me, oh, this guy that just got named head coach of this team, like, when I was working with this team, that was you. 
like you are just like that person you are built for this. And so it also kind of gave me this confidence that like, Mm -hmm. once I got there, that uh, not only I could belong, but that, that I could find a a place to fit. And so I, I think that was part of it. And I think also for me, for, for whatever reason, and I don't know if this is a personality thing or maybe uh, traces back to my parents, like I've always been somebody who has written handwritten letters. That's always been just something that's important and something that uh, I've always done. Mm-hmm. And so I, I definitely made that a priority when I got into coaching is, is to take the time to write those handwritten letters uh, whether it was in recruiting or mm-hmm. just creating a network, which I had none when I started coaching. Sure. And it really just kind of struck me that if I was going to make an impression on these coaches that I really don't have any reason to make an impression on them, I just started kind of reverse engineering what was going to make an impression on them. Okay, maybe a connection to somebody that they've worked with or somebody they know that they can ask about me. And then also, instead of just doing the form typed, letter Mm -hmm. that I had done in the past, um, you know, maybe when I was 22, 23, maybe actually instead of doing that cover letter typed, I would just do the exact same thing, only I would do it hand written. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so I think it was just kind of a reverse engineering of that whole process uh, Uh of kind of like what is going to catch their attention and like, let me try and and double and triple down on that, on that piece. So, so I'm gonna I'm gonna tie that that part about your handwritten letters and just the process that you took to your book, right? Your book, Finding Intangibles. It it says, you know, the book says, you know, it encourage encourages your readers to stop judging people on talent and instead prioritize character, which I in and in theory and philosophy, I agree with that. And what you just described is somebody who has sort of that high order character that writing handwritten letters and really sticking to what probably was a very frustrating and tedious process at times. And you kind of saw it all the way through, like how did that experience in pursuing the NFL and the coaching jobs that, that you went through, how did that inspire the book? Or did it? Yeah, no, it did. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it was a, you know, the book is a culmination of mm-hmm. all of my experiences over the last 20 years, dating back yeah. to that first fourth grade football team, right? Um, I had a very wise coach when I first worked at SMU that told me, you are the sum of your experiences. And so mm-hmm. I think that when I started coaching, and in particular college, you know, I was very fascinated with the recruiting process and the team building process. Mm-hmm. And at SMU at the time, SMU had been, was in the midst of 25 plus years of losing since the the infamous death penalty in the mid 80s. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we hadn't quite gotten over over that hump. And sitting in those first meetings early on, I just was struck by how much we talked about talent and how we never mentioned character. And I didn't know any better, Michael. Like I just Mm -hmm. felt at the time, like, Oh, we should be discussing Mm -hmm. the, the family that we just met. Like this recruit was just on campus with us for four hours. Like we're not even talking about how awesome his parents were. We're not talking about what type of work ethic he is. We're talking about, Hey, did you see his, his Cheryl, excuse me, 
his shoulders are really narrow. Yeah, but he has a big butt. Yeah, but he's six, uh, one and four, four tenths, right? Uh, and it's <laughs> right. like, okay, so yes, that's that's fine. But like that was a great high school football player in a great family that just came through here, and we're picking apart small things that I just felt in my in my heart like that didn't really matter. Mm-hmm. But, but I have to admit, like, I didn't know any better. I just felt like that. Mm-hmm. So I think as I progress through my career, you, you start to see coaches that think similarly to you and that you're al- in alignment with in terms of your philosophy and what's important. And also I started to have experiences on teams mm-hmm. and with players that were supposed to be great. On paper, this guy, and I'll, and I'll just tell you, like the best looking, quote unquote, players, the most talented players were not the best players that I coached or ever worked with. Mm-hmm. Like that was never the case. Uh, and, and so like talking about talent is separate of talking about like what makes a great college football player or what makes a great teammate. Uh, and and so I think as, as those experiences started to accumulate i started to kind of piece all of this together Mm -hmm. in addition to talking not only it wasn't only like finding coaches that that thought similarly to me Mm -hmm. it was coaches that had won at the highest levels that were, were thinking similar to me so this all kind of came to a point where I was doing my master's degree at SMU and I, and I did my master's thesis on talent acquisition within college athletics. And the people I was interviewing were people that had played for the Patriots at, for the first five years of the Bill Belichick era and won three Super Bowls. Some people that had worked with Bill Belichick and won multiple Super Bowls, people that had worked with Pete Carroll and won national championships at USC. And and so in interviewing them, they obviously were teaching me, you know, I was learning from them. uh, But, but like I said, they thought very similar to the way that I did about the influence of character and, and and how it impacts success, both on an individual level and on a team level. Yeah. I mean, the first thing that I thought of when you were giving your answer, like as you were giving it was the Patriots, right? Like the way that they acquire talent, the way they look at talent and assess talent is so different than what has typically been the standard in the NFL, right? They're able to take a guy's strengths and apply them to get the most out of their performance. Whereas a lot of organizations will look at, right, sort of the absolute talent and they'll make poor judgments because they're not really properly assessing all of the other things that go into determining whether or not somebody's going to be a great performer, right. In, in their job, doing their job. So, um, so like as you're coming up through coaching, like, at, so let's take SMU, like, was that something that was your philosophy or your instinct? Was that something you were able to sort of influence people on or like impart to them or was there a natural resistance to maybe the idea that we need to be looking at some of these other intangibles as opposed to really looking at all the me- measurable stuff? Yeah, I think that in all of this, you know, again, like it's very tough if you're an assistant coach for the Patriots to have like a huge influence on what's happening, right? Like ultimately these organizations or college mm-hmm. programs are kind of run by a singular person. And even if they're not run 
by a singular person, that that singular person is influencing everything that's occurring. Mm -hmm. So if you have, and, and this is something that I believe, you know, your head coach has to be intimately involved, particularly in college in the recruiting process, in the evaluation. Um, and, and I kind of outline this in the book, but like you need to have a vision for like what you want your team to be. Mm-hmm. And like, if you look at the teams that win and let's just take, let's just stay in football since that's what I know intimately well, like you can pick apart. Okay. So what do teams have typically, mm-hmm. you know, that, that lead them to win either consistently or, or win championships, right? Like you can reverse engineer that. Oh, well they have right. a, a capable quarterback. Uh, they have a strong running game or they have a strong defense or they have overall talent or, or whatever the case may be. You can do mm-hmm. this for any, any level that you, that you work on or any, any competitive environment mm-hmm. you compete in. Uh, and then you can kind of start to say, okay, so what does our team need? Well, yes, you need talent, right? Mm-hmm. And I talk about in the book, like talent is a minimum requirement. Mm-hmm. Talent should just get you into the conversation. Okay, this person can play at the mm-hmm. Division One level. This person can play and compete at the Division Two level. Mm-hmm. Uh, the coaches are the ones that need to say, okay, does this guy fit us? Is this guy going to fit our culture? Mm -hmm. Uh, And then after you kind of determine whether that person fits your scheme or your culture, then you can kind of look at it and you can say, okay, is this the type of teammate we want? Is this the type of person that that has the intangibles that are going to lead to them having success and and also be a value add to Mm -hmm. our team? And I'm not talking about on the field, on the field. Yeah, that's great. And, And obviously you need that, but like the, the great teams have this cumulative cumulative effect mm-hmm. of of intangibles that permeate their teams, mm-hmm. um, and you know I, I I obviously feel very strongly about this, and I could kind of go off here for another uh, um, hour or so talking about different examples. Um, but suffice it to say, like you know, you talk about the Patriots. The Patriots are never the most talented team ever when they've won the championship. Mm -hmm. Right. Like they're they're always like, you know, well, they're running back only had 400 yards this season. Mm -hmm. Um, But but like they do a great job of putting their guys in positions to win and have success Mm -hmm. on a week to week basis. You know, it's not about having the sixteen hundred yard rusher, et cetera, et cetera. So that was things that I started to see throughout my time. So all this to say that it's all driven by the head coach and that coach's philosophy uh, and potentially somebody who has their ear or, or their influence. So um, I think what I do now working with uh, sports teams, pro organizations, coaches, Mm -hmm. I have that effect and impact to kind of outline a lot of my philosophy to them and help Mm -hmm. encourage them. It's not, it's not so much my philosophy. The book is really about defining your own philosophy and then finding players that fit that, right? Like I talk in the book about finding mindset, finding heart and and finding team first players, but that's just what I've seen in my experience. Uh, Mm -hmm. If if you were a basketball coach, you might see a couple of different things. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you were, you know, a sales team for a fortune 500 company, you might determine other things, but the process is the same of defining Mm. what it is you want your team to represent, finding the best people to help 
uh, build that team you want to you envision uh, and then obviously going out and, and executing and performing. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. I mean, I when I when I think about, you know, what you just said, I think about the phrase buy in, right? Coaches have to get players that buy in. And from the bottom up, the players need to accept their roles, which to me relates to character, right? Right. Someone's coming into an organization where they're not the only person. There's hundreds of people who are involved in the process of building a team. Do I accept my role and am I going to be okay with that and operate to the best of my ability within that context with, you know, with full buy-in? That's hard, right? Because as the bigger an organization gets and the, the more complicated or complex things get, the more things that can go wrong, right? So like what, what are some of the, from your perspective, what are some of the intangibles or some of the hidden traits that you sort of look, you would look for, or you sort of value the most in your role as a coach? So I think like when I started to really put a lot of this together, as I mentioned, it was things that I felt, you know, growing up, maturing and and growing through Mm -hmm. coaching, Um, but I didn't really like define it. It was just things Mm -hmm. that I felt like, oh, we should be talking about this person's family. We should be talking about their work ethic. I think when I read the book Mindset by Carol Dweck was when I really started to to intimately think about what a philosophy would look like. And in particular, and anybody that hasn't read that book, I would highly recommend. I I think Mm -hmm. I read this. It was in the final few years of my coaching career. So this is like 2014, 15, when I was at UCLA. Mm -hmm. My first thought was, oh, I wish I had read this book back when I first started coaching. Uh, It's incredible just in terms, especially for a coach, because it talks a lot about how to bring out a growth mindset, either in a child, in somebody you're teaching, in, in in athletics. Uh, and, you know, it goes a lot back to uh, praising people on the process versus the results. And I think that's one of my personal philosophies is always to be process driven, not results oriented. Yeah. Uh, and that's not to say the results don't matter, but you need to reverse engineer what results you want and create a process based off of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've, I've just seen time and time again that any focus on like goals really doesn't result in what you're trying to accomplish. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I mentioned the Patriots earlier, the Patriots don't stand in front of the team at the beginning of every year and say, here's our six Super Bowl championships. And this is what we're trying to do. They don't talk about any of that. All they talk about is playing Cincinnati the first week of the preseason. That's all they worry about. Right. So everything is this singular focus on the process in this week, in this moment. And I think that's one of the things in terms of mindset, uh, Mm. particularly a growth mindset, is the ability to stay focused in the moment and give your very best uh, effort towards that. Uh, Obviously, the resilience factor of, of failing and still having the um, courage to stand back sure, up and, and keep going. And those are huge things. And I think also to look back on performances, whether good or bad, and find ways to continually improve. And those are kind of like the three things that I've seen that kind of separate in terms of mindset uh, and, and probably could make the argument that that's like the one intangible that, that really 
for me, it started everything, but you could just focus on that one piece and make the argument that that's the most important thing. I, I wouldn't disagree. So, so much of my coaching with young athletes is around that concept of controlling what you can control and using your experiences as information to improve because you can't control the result, whether it's the result that you're shooting for or the result as it relates to other people. Right. And I think it is really, it takes a really skilled coach to help develop that mindset because it's not innate in most people. In right. most people, it's they're, they're results oriented by nature. Right. So there's that. And then we live in a culture that's results oriented. And so what I find myself doing a lot is unwinding a results oriented or a fixed mindset. And trying to build a growth mindset, which is a really hard thing to do, right? And so what might be some of the things that you would do, right, with a client, whether it's an athlete, a business client, to, to, to sort of instill the concept that a growth mindset is going to be the most productive way to move forward? So you bring up a really good point, Michael. I mean, you're talking about like, how do you build this in somebody that maybe hasn't had this experience? And, mm -hmm. you know, I have a background in recruiting coaching. Um, I did it for basically, obviously, I was very heavily involved as a recruiting coordinator and in recruiting efforts mm -hmm. in my coaching career, but also as a recruiting coach after my coaching career and dealt a lot with this where I was talking to families and athletes who had less than ideal experiences with their high school coaches Mm -hmm. Uh, and th those are very difficult to hear because like I said, like I read that book mindset by Carol Dweck and I was like, man, every coach should be at least influenced in some small way in their coaching. Uh, and not to go on a rant here, but one of the things that really frustrates me about coaching in general is like, we have this idea that coaching is about yelling uh, and it's very ego driven and it's about me and the, the cameras on me. So now I have to like show that I'm upset. Uh, and number one, I don't really think that's really that effective. And number two, I definitely think that the athletes now are different in, in a way that they are, they're not just going to listen to you because you're coach, uh, connection and care is extremely important when it comes to coaching at any level. And um, I just don't believe that the, the maybe like the old school model of I'm Bill Parcells, uh, I'm Urban Meyer, so do what I tell you to do and don't talk back. That mm -hmm. doesn't really, it, number one, it should have probably never really worked. But like number two, you know, there's an, there's an element of why would I listen to you if I don't feel like you care about me? Uh, and I think this is true in corporate environments as well. I've seen this a lot in, in people that I've worked with uh, where, you know, there's maybe a lack of care from, mm -hmm. from somebody that's over them. And it just has um, a diminishing effect on even if you love your job or love what you do or love your team uh, can, can really spoil an experience. So I'm starting to ramble and get off topic here. No, but, um, I, don't, I don't think it's off topic. I, I think it's very complicated though, because, you know, when I, cause I agree again, like I think we sing from the same song, uh, songbook, you know, in that sense. But one of the things that 
I try to instill in the young people that I work with is that the the coaches that coach you in most cases are paid to do so and they're paid to generate results. And whether or not, whether you like it or not, those coaches are not, most of them or some of them may not be development oriented, right? They may not be interested in your personal development long-term. They're interested in generating a, a, a national championship or a state title or getting to the playoffs or whatever it is in the short term. And you need to understand that as an athlete, right? Like there are some things you just can't control. And so, you know, sometimes when a, when an athlete has a coach that they either don't see eye to eye with or feel like the coach doesn't care, I tell them like, well, you got two choices. You could sit and take it and be frustrated by it and get angry and have that affect your performance. Or you can go have a conversation with that coach and it may not go the way you want it to, but to, to something you said earlier, it's more data. Right. If I have a conversation with the coach, I control that. I may not like what I hear back, but then I can process that. I don't I don't have that fear of the unknown anymore. And I could take that data and say, like, okay, this is what I need to do next, because now I know where the coach is coming from, which to me all boils down to communication. And it's unfortunate, I think, you know, albeit, you know, you know, it's real life, that coaches aren't always great at communicating with young people who are expecting the coach to care for them. And, you know, it's the young person's you know, um, the young person's burden to bear to go have that conversation, but it's in their control. And so there's this, you know, very complex dynamic of, you know, how do we communicate with the people that are in, in power, right? Coaches are in power. They dictate our future in some ways. And am I willing to challenge that authority in a, you know, in a respectful way to get answers so that I can further my development? It's, it's super complicated, right? But it's, I think it's worth, it's worth exploring. Yeah. And, and I'll share a story here that maybe, you know, you asked about how do you build that or, or like, yeah. what can you do? And I, and I kind of got off on my own coaching. <laughs> no, it's all right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think a lot of this and, and we, I think if you're in sports by, by, by most people's accounts, you're dealing with some type of adversity personally. Sports is all about random events and setbacks, right? Like that is the nature of sports. But I think like even personally, whether it's you want to be a starter on the basketball team and the coach doesn't see you that way, or, uh, you know, you really want to make uh, the field hockey team, but like yeah, you get cut. And I think that a lot of times, obviously we all experiences, experience those valleys, but I truly believe that the way that you respond has a cascading effect within your life, within your uh, professional life. And when I was with the Miami Dolphins, uh, I had uh, worked my way up to where I was assisting the special teams coaches. Mm -hmm. And um, I had done that for the majority, uh, basically since week one of the preseason. And I was really excited about the potential of me being there that whole year, assisting these coaches, and then what might come of that experience. And with two weeks, two or three weeks left in the season, they had brought on a uh, somebody to help with special teams. And, and this individual ended up being the son of the head coach. And so for me as a coach and having experienced sons of coaches my entire career, I already knew what was happening, right? Like even as they were telling me, 
hey, we've got this guy. He's going to help you. He's going to really help us. Like, teach him everything that you're doing, and he can really help us. Well, I kind of already knew what that meant. Like, even mm-hmm. in the moment when they were telling me, I wasn't like, oh, this is not good for Evan Burke. <laughs> like, right. this is, th- this. Uh, I already know what's happening. Yeah. And, you know, I, I can remember being very upset, right? Like I put a lot into getting to that point in my career and I can remember calling my parents back home and just kind of like commiserating with them, but they didn't really allow me to stay in that. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, cause I was sitting there and I was like, well, what, what if I just download all the stuff and don't share it with them and just delete it. And then, and, and like, they weren't going to even entertain that. Right. It was like, no, you're going to show up every day and show them who you are in this moment. And I thought that was Mm -hmm. obviously incredibly profound for me. And that's exactly what I did. I showed up and my mentality was I'm going to train the guy that's going to replace me. If there may not be, nobody might care here. Like they're already trying to replace me and nobody might notice, but maybe somebody notices that like, man, they're replacing this guy and he does not stop. He shows up here every day and dominates, right? Like that's been my, that was my mantra in coaching. It was like, we're either dominating today or we're just getting by. And right. like, I wasn't going to let myself or like you said, other circumstances, things I couldn't control dictate my mindset, how I showed up every day and how I was, was going to dominate that day. And so in that moment, it was like, okay, even if they're going to replace me, like they're not going to be able to say, well, Evan really mailed it in the last two weeks there. It's going to be Evan showed up here every day. (laughs) He brought way more energy than was probably necessary. Um, But that was the mark that I wanted to leave on, on that experience and every experience thereafter. Yeah. It, 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 you know, it reminds me, you know, when I, this isn't, you know, sports psychology is my first career. My first career was in business. And I remember, I'll always remember somebody saying like when companies go through a merger, right? Like people get panicked about losing their job because there's redundancy, right? And the person that shows up to the job every day, not knowing what their future is going to be and does the job to the best of their ability to help facilitate the integration of the two companies is the one that either A, gets to stay or B gets a recommendation to go to their next job. Right. And so which that's basically what you described, right? That character of having like, Hey, like no matter what happens, like I'm going to show up the best way I can. And it's going to have a long-term effect on your reputation. And as we all know, right. With hindsight in our lives, we look back on the adversities that we have and, you know, 99 times out of a hundred, they end up being opportunities for something better and new and different. And, you know, but in that moment, it's like, oh crap, what am I going to do? Or what does this say about me? Right. I think that's a big part of what I talk to people about as well as identity, right? The reason why people are so hard on themselves or they're so judgmental about the results is I put in all this time and effort and energy into what I'm doing as an athlete or whatever it is I do. And if I don't perform, what does that say about me as a person, right? What's wrong with me? because I'm doing all this stuff and I'm not getting the results and the feedback that I want. I mean, I think that that's a huge part of it. And one of the things that I try to 
focus on with people too is identity, right? Like what are the elements of your identity that are beyond performer, right? And, you know, what does that make you as a person? And I think that that's really important. And I think if you tie it back to what you've been saying is when you're evaluating talent, right? Whether it's in the college recruiting process at the professional level, right? Like what's important to people, not just professionally, but what's important to them. Like those values matter. Character matters. Like, because there's so much more that goes into being a winner, right? If you, if you boil it down to winning, there's so much more to being a winner than just talent. Like you said. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I mean, you think about it, what, if you break down any successful person in any, any sports arena, any competitive arena, yes, they have talent. But like I said, talent is a minimum requirement. Mm-hmm. Like if you talk about Tom Brady, you know, I, I cite in the book and it's, you know, a lot of people that have been following sports know that Tom Brady had a huge profound uh, influence on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They couldn't win as a team before he got there. They were a 500 mm-hmm. team every single year, no matter who the coach was, no matter who the quarterback was, Tom Brady goes in there. And yes, he's a good quarterback. I mean, I say good. He's a great quarterback. Let's just say in his mid-40s, he's a he's a very good quarterback, right? Yeah. Like I'm underselling it, but <laughs> that's not what that's not the influence. That's not why they win games. Why they win games is because he shows up day one at 5 a.m. and stays there till eight, and they have no clue that that's what he does. All they see is what he does on Sunday. And once they see what goes in to his preparation, mm-hmm. how he takes care of his body, the type of intensity he shows up with with every practice, every single day, then it becomes clear that like, oh, we don't win, not because we don't have talent, it's because we don't we don't approach the things we need to approach the right way. Um, and Tom Brady is here showing us what it takes. Um, and, and so like that's something I feel extremely passionate about and what people get wrong in the evaluation process like they don't equate for competitiveness they don't equate for how much it means to somebody uh they they overlook these things because you can't measure them like you can measure a hand and everybody's Mm -hmm. making a big deal because this top quarterback right now in in the nfl draft (laughs) he's he has like a smaller hand size than typical and and I think there's, there's been studies that like, okay, most quarterbacks that have success in the NFL have this baseline. Okay, but did the kid not have an excellent four years of college? Uh, is he not 6'4", 210? Uh, does he not have that type of grit and resilience? So it's just funny how we take these measurables mm-hmm. and we like we like put them on a pedestal, but yet out of the side of our mouth, we'll say, oh yeah, this other stuff's important, but we actually won't through our actions show its importance. We'll, we'll look at Jamarcus Russell and we'll see all of the things that it's like, okay, red flag, um, like limited starting time, uh, surrounded by literally a cast of all Americans. Um, the word on the street is he doesn't work. Uh, oh, he's 260 pounds. I'm not trying to just like, you know, tear down Jamarcus Russell, but like, everybody's saying he's the greatest prospect they've ever seen. And they're discounting all these other players. Right. And he's the number one pick in the draft. And so 
I just think that even after everything that we've seen, we still see like the same mistakes being made also by the same teams. Um, you know, the, the, everybody's susceptible to mistakes, but like by and large, the same teams are making the same mistakes. And, and if they had the most talent and that was what mattered, they would win instead of, you know, having the top picks in the draft every year. Well, so, so, okay. Like let's go with that. Right. So let's, Let's take that example because when you were when you were talking, I'm thinking to myself, like, why doesn't everybody just try to replicate the New England model, right? And and part of it, I think, is like you said, everybody has different values, right? It doesn't have to be exactly like New England. But in that example of Jamarcus Russell, look at the Raiders. The Raiders have been doing the same things for drafting the same way for 50 years. The the guy who runs the fastest 40 is the guy that they take, right? Like they're looking at all this sort of superficial stuff and they haven't adapted to the idea that the most successful teams are looking at things that are not visible. They're not tangible. They're asking better questions. They're culturally, they're doing things differently. Like, why do you think that some of these organizations aren't changing or aren't adapting with the times? Well, again, this has to do, we were talking earlier about the person in charge. And Mm -hmm. if you don't believe that, and look, it's hard to sit in those chairs. And, and now you're looking at somebody who has everything you're looking for. And, but you maybe aren't sure about their character or whatever, but there's somebody else that doesn't have those same measurables. Um, And I've just, I mean, I've talked to so many people where we're having this conversation Mm -hmm. and then I'll talk to other people and they'll say, well, find talent first and then you build character. Well, I don't really believe that, like, Mm -hmm. especially at the highest levels of athletics, right? Like a lot of these people, you know, if you're a star player, you have had a certain you have had certain communication towards you for your entire life um this is bigger but it's like the university of texas should be what alabama or ohio state is in football sure they should be but like one of the problems is here in texas high school football is extremely important. If you're not from Texas, I don't know if I can like adequately overstate how important it is, Mm -hmm. which means if you're a star player, like people are talking about you, people are coming up to you, telling you how great you are your whole life from like, you know, little Mm -hmm. league all the way to high school. Then you're recruited by the top teams in the nation who are telling you how great you are. You go to the university of Texas where you are filled with a team of guys exactly like you. Talent-wise, Texas should be in the conversation top five every single year, but they're not. And I think it goes back a lot to these guys. You know, we were talking about fixed mindset. Now you think like, man, everywhere I've been, I've been the best player on the field. But it's not about being the best player on the field. It's about what are you going to do when you step on the field and you're not the best player? Like, how do you respond in that moment? And so some guys that have never had to go through that adversity or go through the work that it takes to excel um, are not going to excel once they get to Texas, once they get drafted in the NFL. It just doesn't happen. Yeah, Tom Brady is a great example. But like somebody else that I was referencing uh, was Cooper uh, thinking about it was Cooper Cup? I talk about him in the book as well. Like people look at his forty time and say, "Well, he's a four six two forty. But let me ask you this: 
what di- dictates success for an NFL receiver? Right? Like, and so if you reverse engineer that, speed is important, but not every receiver is 4 3. And not every 4 3 receiver is a good NFL receiver. You have to be able to catch. Um, and, and like, you have to be able to separate, you have to have quickness, uh, you have to have knowledge of what type of coverage you're playing. So, you know, where the hole is going to be and where to break your route off shallower than you normally would mm-hmm. all these things that Cooper cup excels at that you cannot see and measure. Yeah. Like you have to tell a story to yourself and to find these things. Sorry. I know you want to jump in here. And no, I'm like ahead, no, no, no. I, lo- I, I love it. But I, I think there's a couple things there. So on that point, I, I you know, and, and maybe this isn't relevant, but this is just me being interested in, in that particular point about Cooper cup is I think there is a shift back now, or at least I get the sense there's a shift back to the idea that what is the tape show? If you can play, you can play. And then the measurables are sort of the check, like, right? Like, okay, like the guy catch a hundred balls a year in college, like he gets open, right? His 40 time is a little slower, but like, is it so slow that he can't go out and perform? Like what was Jerry Rice's 40 time? I think there's this sentiment. I get the sense that people are looking at the tape and saying, listen, you got to be able to play first. And if you can produce and play the other stuff will kind of take care of itself, especially like if you think about where he came from. He came from a you know a kind of a smaller Division One college. He's not going to have the resources that you're going to have at the NFL level. You're going to get the best coaches, the best nutritionists, the best strength guys, all those things. Then you put a productive player into an environment where there's more resources, and they're only going to develop and get better, right? And I think the the thinking can be a bit backwards. And and the more important point I think for this podcast is that's what you talked about people going from say high school to college or college to pros is such a big theme on this podcast. When I talk to people about that jump from high school to college specifically, I'm a star in high school. I go to college. I'm just like everybody else. And I don't know how to deal with it. Right. And that's where the growth mindset of, Hey, what's my next step? The vision is I want to go to the professional level. That's four years away or three years away. What am I going to do to reverse engineer it? Right how I perform as a freshman isn't as important as how I perform as a senior. So what am I going to do the next four years to, to improve and develop to get to where I want to go? And I think a lot of kids think about it as the end all be all. Like once I get to the division one level in any sport, I'm preordained to go on to be a professional. And they realize really quickly, like there's a hundred of guys, guys here like me. And how do you instill that growth mindset at that point? And I think it's a real challenge. No, you just summed up basically the entire reason I wrote the book. When you make it to division one or you Mm. get drafted, you as a coach want to make sure that that guy doesn't think, okay, I've made it. You want to draft the guy that thinks, okay, now I can start getting to work. Now what? And that's what the entire book is about. Because literally if you are, on a NFL draft board, you have talent. You have talent. But after you're drafted, none of that matters, right? Um, teams get caught, and this is like kind of down the road, but teams get caught up into saying, oh, well, we spent this much money. We drafted. Like, you already drafted that person. Like, that pick is gone. 
So if you find out that the guy doesn't fit your scheme or can't play, why are you why are you holding on to that person? A lot of this goes back to ego and things like that. But Absolutely. what you just said about the the mentality once you get there, you know, you said something earlier that I wanted to like hit on is that like we look at people that are ultra successful and we focus on their success. And like coaches do this too. You mentioned Jerry Rice. I've got coaches I've worked for that have worked with Jerry Rice. And I guarantee you, if I asked them, they would just like roll their eyes and just be like, yeah, then that, whatever. But Jerry Rice was awesome. Okay. Was he really that awesome? Because he played at Mississippi Valley State. Um, was he really that awesome? Because he wasn't the first overall pick in the draft. Like, from what I've heard, is that Jerry Rice was the hardest worker, worker. on that team. Um, and I've heard stories about him talking about, um, I, I went to an event that he spoke at a couple of years ago before the pandemic. And he was talking about, he felt like he was about to be cut his rookie year and Bill Walsh walked by him at one of these training camp practices and just basically told him like, Hey man, you're going to be great. Uh, like once you calm down, you're going to be great. You're going to be one of the greats. And like, whether or not Bill Walsh really believed that, who knows? Mm -hmm. But like what he was doing was he was instilling that confidence in Jerry Rice. Like, hey, man, calm down. Like, even though you're dropping balls as a rookie, mm -hmm. like I see it in you. And he yeah. said like that ignited him to where he was like, oh, you didn't need to tell me anything the rest of my time. <laughs> like that was all that I needed. That just that little piece um, and, you know, again, going back to our coaching point, like it doesn't need to be, gosh, dang it, Michael, if you could just ever get out of your freaking head, yeah. you would put it to, you know, it was just like a little, I guarantee you it was a 10 second interaction uh, that stuck with Jerry Rice to where he was talking about it 30 years later. And um, I, I just believe that, you know, you look at, we look at people like Tom Brady and Aaron mm -hmm. Rodgers and we say, well, like, look how awesome they are. And those guys are probably the two best football players, let's just say quarterbacks of all time. I don't think there's any question. But like if you don't go back to like look at Aaron Rodgers not being tall enough to be recruited by Division One, yep. literally accidentally being recruited into Division One once he went to junior college. Uh, Tom Brady going to Michigan, not being good enough to start. Then when he finally is good enough to start, they recruit the best high school player in the nation in both baseball and football <laughs> to start over him. Yep. Uh, and then the daily grind of having to show up to practice every day and bring mm -hmm. it or else Drew Henson was just going to be given the reins of the organization or, or, or of the college football program. And it's like, if you don't think that those moments in time were instrumental in what we see now, then you don't get it. And mm. like, it's not a coincidence that those guys went through that and are now at the pinnacle of, of professional sports. Very few of us can be born into a number one draft pick like Peyton Manning and Eli Manning. And by the way, those guys bring a ton of intangibles yes. in addition to their talent. Um, and, and so I, I think that we oftentimes focus on the results and we don't even acknowledge the fact that these guys sat and had to play on scout team for, for years before they got their opportunity. Mm -hmm. All right. So 
As we wind down the conversation, the the last question that I usually ask uh, to all my guests, and it's a big one in the sense that it's kind of open-ended and up to you to sort of answer it the way you want to. But if if you had to give the people who are listening, the audience, one thing to sort of take away from the conversation, like one thing to sort of hang on to, what what would it be? I think to keep going. You know, I, I reflect a lot of times on on my experience as a coach, and uh, I wanted to be a head coach in the NFL or in college, mm-hmm. and and I didn't get to experience that, but I got to have all of these great experiences. And every step along the way, when I would have a setback or something that I felt was insurmountable, um, I just kept going and was mm-hmm. able, like you mentioned earlier, to kind of find the next opportunity and it ends up being an even a greater opportunity. Um, and I think that for a lot of us, we focus on success as like a destination or a Mm. result. Uh, and I really believe that success is really determined by showing up and performing at your highest level every day, regardless of the circumstances regardless of what happened yesterday or what we've accomplished or, or what our failures were in the past. So um, I'd say showing up every day, focus on your domination and performing at your highest level. It's really well said. And I, I, I couldn't agree more. It's a great way to end the show. So Evan, I, I want to thank you for coming on. I appreciate your time. It was a great conversation. I would love to, to keep it going. Yes, indeed. I, I get a little fired up at times, especially when we're talking about good. these topics. But uh, yeah, this was really fun. Thanks for having me on, Michael. Thanks again, Evan. Take care. Take care. So what was your biggest takeaway from my conversation with Evan Burke? For me, it's that talent is a minimum requirement for athletic success. There are many athletes with amazing natural abilities. However, intangible characteristics like mindset, heart, and unselfishness ultimately separate the talented from the most accomplished individuals. Evan's philosophy sinks to me as a mental performance coach because I am constantly espousing the value of process and controlling the controllables to my clients. My suggestion to young athletes is to think about how to be different. You can set yourself apart from your peers by taking great pride in doing the little things that others may not want to do. Demonstrating infectious energy, effort and focus will take you a long way toward reaching your goals. I want to thank Evan for his generosity and the wisdom he shared with the Freshman Foundation community. You can learn more about Evan on his website at www.coachevanburke.com. You can also follow Evan on Instagram at Coach Evan Burke. To learn more about how mental performance coaching can help your mind work for you rather than against you, visit michaelvhuber.com. Thank you for listening. We'll see you back in two weeks, ready to get better. Mike Huber is the founder and owner of Follow the Ball Coaching, located in Fairhaven, New Jersey. He is a mental performance coach and business advisor dedicated to serving athletes just like you reach their full potential on and off the court. The Freshman Foundation is all about helping you get to the next level. For more information, follow along on Instagram at The Freshman Foundation. Please subscribe. Give us a like on iTunes, Spotify, leave a review, 
tell a friend. Most importantly, come back in two weeks, ready to get better.